is Quake Fix Politics, the newest addition to the Amherst Wire, where we play devil's advocate and look at the latest news from every angle. My name is Joe Kachowski, I'm your host, and you can follow me at jkachowski on Twitter. I'm here with my guest, Tim Annis, president of the UMass Democrats. How's it going, Tim? Doing good, thanks. How are you? So where can we find you and the rest of the UMass Democrats on social media, Tim? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at UMass Dems, and on Facebook is uh, UMass Democrats. All right. So um, today we're going to be talking about a wide ranging top, a wide range of topics, uh, going from the coronavirus to an immigration problem that's happening in Europe, to um, the Middle Eastern wars that are happening. So we're going to open it up today with a February 29th tweet by the U.S. Surgeon General. His name is Jerome Adams, and the tweet reads, and I quote: "Seriously, people, stop buying masks." They are not effective in preventing the general public from catching the coronavirus. But if health providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. And a lot of that was in full caps, a lot of that exclamation points. Um, so my first point that I get from this is that the masks work for healthcare providers, but they don't work for the rest of us for some reason. That doesn't really make any sense to me. What are your thoughts on that? I think, well, I'm actually in a class right now with um, a microbiologist here at UMass, and she was kind of talking about that, where the main goal of a mask, especially the ones that are available for us, it's not really going to stop the particles from going in, but the main thing is not touching your face, and that's a big thing that she was saying these masks are doing, but a lot of people are trying to buy them, and it's just gunning up the price, and you know, there's going to be a shortage probably. Right, and this guy's saying though that we should stop buying the masks because healthcare providers need them, but he's also saying that they're not effective in preventing the general public from c catching the coronavirus. So, isn't that kind of you know contradicting? I think it's just trying to do that in the point like I think his main goal is making sure that there's enough for uh, healthcare providers, and I think they're more exposed to illnesses where it's more effective for them to avoid touching their face or, you know, their nose when, uh, for students at UMass, that's not really the biggest concern. And I kind of think that this tweet is a little bit unprofessional. Um, if you look at it, there's a lot of all caps in the tweets, and he's really trying to make the point, you know, it's not effective at all. Don't you think it's kind of unprofessional? He's sort of like, yelling at the general public like please stop you know what I mean I think a little bit but I also think you know it is a cause for concern that there are you know there is I wouldn't say panic but definitely there is a concern amongst the public uh, and I think you know that is shared with medical professionals so I think there's kind of this sense of urgency uh, but also just you know the medium of Twitter it's not really meant for I guess public like professional public statements that it's kind of become. All right, so um, the next article that we're gonna go over is also related to the coronavirus, and it's an article out of the Boston Globe, and it's that uh, store shelves are being wiped clean of some products among the coronavirus spheres. So um, the issue that's at hand is that a lot of the factories in China are closing, and also uh, they've banned travel cross-country with animals. So they can't really get animals some places to where they need them. And it's making a shortage here. So one of the first ones that I saw was that the ingredients for Diet Coke, they can't get to the United States. So there's actually going to be a Diet Coke shortage, which I don't know 
how big of an issue that is, but if you like Diet Coke, <laughs> that's going to be an issue. Yeah, that's that's a surprising one. I think it's going to be a cause for concern for the president, it seems like. Yeah, and also he's beating with uh, the large pharmaceutical companies and some other biotech companies, um, and he's actually trying to get a uh, cure for the coronavirus right now, which I don't know if he can he himself can hurry them up or something, but... Yeah, that's... Uh, it's it's a long process for a reason I think is the big thing and you know we can't rush science because if we rush science we're gonna have bad results and you know I think the main thing right now is focus on prevention good public health hygiene uh, and let science run its course and make sure that we can have a vaccine or a better way to cure the disease that you know doesn't put people at risk so uh, on this podcast uh, we're gonna be doing a lot of devil's advocate so I'm going to be uh, playing the sort of conservative role so that anybody who's a conservative that's listening to it knows that, you know, I know their point of view and I can state their point of view and argue for them. So um, a lot of conservatives that I'm seeing on social media are saying, this is why we need U.S. industry back in the country. This is why we voted for Trump, because we need U.S. industry back in this country, because the Chinese took too long in warning the public about this, and now all these factories are closing because the Chinese essentially tried to hide the coronavirus. Do you have any argument against that? Because that's, you know, it's going to play into Trump's hands right now, I think. Yeah, I don't think necessarily the that this is the reason why American manufacturing, you know, has to come back. It's American manufacturing left because technology is better, but... Also, a lot of it is just supply chain disruptions where you might have parts coming from China that might be manufactured in Mexico, sent to the U.S. Uh, and global trade isn't just as, you know, simple as China, U.S. It, there's a lot of, you know, inner, like, stuff gets sent from country to country. And, you know, coronavirus is showing the weaknesses, I guess, of a very interglobalized world that we're getting into now. But I don't think that this is, you know, necessarily the reason why American manufacturing, you know, is the most important thing just because of this one symptom and illness that's coming up. I mean, I would tend to agree that generally the Chinese government have handled this very poorly. And it's not to say that the U.S. government hasn't handled it poorly. I mean, Trump is is basically like lying about the numbers of coronavirus victims that are out there. He said, what, 22 and we're, we're up past that now. You know, it seems like he's just trying to, you know, uh, keep the stock market uh, in place. But at the same time, the Chinese government have been lying about the numbers of infected people, the numbers of dead people, how they're treating the infected people. Do you think that plays a role in it? Because I think if these manufacturing companies were here, they would have much more of a heads up. They, you know, we would know the situation much more clearly. Obviously, not the full picture, but you know, the Chinese government's essentially hiding info from the public. I think a little bit. It's also to the precautions that the Chinese government put in place. They pr- pretty much put. I think it's Wabe province on lockdown. So, you know, that wouldn't really happen in the U.S., but on the scale that they're looking at, they have 90,000 people infected with this illness that, you know, out of an abundance of caution, you know, there needs to be some way to figure out, you know, what's happening. And I think necessarily that it's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put all the blame on, you know, you know, this economic kind of stock market plunge that happened and then the little rebound that happened today just on that but 
you know, it's going to have this big effect on, you know, supply chains that, you know, I don't think people have really started to look at yet because it's only going to get worse from here, it looks like. Yeah, so if people don't know what he's talking about with the stock market, is that the stock market took a massive plunge over the last week or so, and today it took a massive upswing. So it went up 1,200 points, which is, a you know, for those of you who aren't involved in the stock market, don't watch uh, the Dow Jones figures. 1,200 is a massive amount. You know, that's almost, probably almost record-breaking. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would assume it's almost record-breaking. Um so the next story that we're going to look at is this deal that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban, of all people, which you don't often see us getting along with the Taliban. Uh, it's a deal from the BBC. The headline is, Afghan conflict, Trump hails deal with a Taliban to end the 18-year war. Essentially, the deal is we're going to move about a fourth of our troops out of Afghanistan over the next four months, and then the remainder of them will leave in the next 14 months if the Taliban upholds their end of the deal, which is essentially they have to stop working with al-Qaeda. So for those who don't know, we've been fighting al-Qaeda on the ground in Afghanistan in a losing war. I would say it's been losing for the last you know 18 years. We haven't made really any groundwork. We don't know what our objective there is. And uh, I think personally we should pull out uh, immediately. But over the next 14 months, could we agree that at the very least this is a good deal from Trump? I mean, there's not really any downside to this. We're pulling troops out of Afghanistan, which we shouldn't have been there in the first place. So what do you think? I think it could be a good deal. I think, you know, we're, I think, you know, we probably shouldn't have gone to Afghanistan in the first place. I think the war on terror has, you know, shown itself to just be, you know, quagmire after quagmire in the Middle East. But, you know, I think going forward, I think it's, it's going to need to be a very delicate withdrawal just to make sure, you know, the Afghan government is very fragile at the moment. And we really, you know, I hope that, you know, before leaving, we make sure that, you know, we're not going to leave and just leave a power vacuum, kind of like what happened in Iraq when ISIS was able to come back into power uh, and take parts of the country because the uh, government in Baghdad was so weak. So I'm hoping that, you know, we can make sure that there's going to be actual fruitful peace uh, in Afghanistan. So um, I would disagree with that a little bit. I think we should pull out altogether immediately. And the reason is, is because I think Afghanistan, just like Iraq, just like a lot of these other countries, we have destroyed their governments in a lot of way, you know, especially Iraq, we've destroyed their government entirely. I don't know if there's ever going to be a necessarily peaceful solution. And the reason is, because any leader that sides with the United States, the people probably aren't going to trust because we haven't been a trustworthy ally to the people in the Middle East. So I think the Afghani government, they're always going to run into problems with the Taliban, with Al-Qaeda, with people like that. I think we just have to give it up because there's actually an old saying that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. That once you go into Afghanistan, you are dooming your country. You're, you're, it's basically a sinkhole where you sink money into your military. For, for people who don't know, the combat in Afghanistan is essentially a bunch of mountains where Al-Qaeda hides in, and we have to go into the mountains, and we don't know the, the tunnels. It's basically just a series of tunnels that they've dug. 
we have no way of combating that. After 18 years, we still haven't really figured out how to do it, other than, you know, nuking an entire mountain off the, you know, face of the earth. Um, so I think we should just pull out altogether. What would you say to that? I would still say that, you know, just leaving at once just leaves an incredibly big power vacuum. Okay, so over the next 14 months, what would you say to that? I think that's a pretty good deal. You know, I'm not too up to date with, like, military planning. I think maybe 14, you know, maybe two years if you get these necessary concessions for, you know, a peaceful, you know, like, situation in Afghanistan. I think it's once you get those necessary concessions. And I would also want to make sure that, you know, the Afghan government has some, you know, will uphold their end, too. And that this is something that they're okay with, too, just to make sure that, you know, both the two big players in Afghanistan, you know, will keep their ends of the deal when the U.S. ends up leaving. So something interesting is that um, during the 2016 election and up to now, I see a lot of Trump supporters on social media saying that they believe we need to get out of these wars. It's one of those areas where... The Trump administration has actually taken conservatives in a very different direction. Normally, the conservatives would be extremely pro-war, but Trump, as far as I can tell, he's been pretty lax when it comes to you know fighting wars. No new wars under the Trump administration. Um, you know, we've we've settled down in Syria, and now it looks like we're settling down in Afghanistan. And I see a lot of conservatives pointing at Democrats, and I think this is a valid point that with what you're saying there. It seems like you're kind of taking the Republican side of, you know, 10 years ago where it's like, well, we can't leave unless this, this and this happens. Why not just pull out and just let them deal with their own problems in Afghanistan? I think we've interfered enough in Afghanistan, frankly. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, leaving create such a big vacuum. And I think, you know, I don't think necessarily the concessions would be, you know, so large that you would have this permanent military presence because... You know, if that happens, we're going to have people in Afghanistan for 50 years, 100 years. But I also think necessarily the Taliban is not a very great, you know, group that you want to have access to power and weapons in Afghanistan. So I think you want to make sure that, you know, for both the safety of people in Afghanistan and for the safety of the region to make sure that there's, you know, a stable Afghanistan because, you know, you might have you know, what ends up happening if there's a civil war in Afghanistan and people are fleeing uh, the country, I think that would just be a bad situation. So if we set a timeline for 14 months, do you think that's good? Or do you think that we should expand it beyond that? You know, if there's some terrorist attack or something in Afghanistan? Yeah, I think if it's 14 months and the conditions are met, I think that could be a good thing. I think, and you saw that on, you know, the debate stage too you had people like Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg saying let's get out either now or within a year and then you know so I think it's kind of become at least as much of a bipartisan consensus in Washington that you know you still have some people like you know kind of more hawkish people saying we need to stay there for more years or get a better deal and you also have some people being like we need to get out so you know, I think at this point in time when you've had people who have been serving, who were born after the war started, I think at this point it's time to go. It didn't work for the British, it didn't work for the Soviets, and 
now it's time for the U.S. to try to get out of there. Yeah, just to explain that, for anybody who doesn't know, the Soviet Union went into Afghanistan in their last 10 years of existence, and they drained so much money in Afghanistan that it essentially bankrupted them. So we want to avoid that situation in Afghanistan. It's known as the graveyard of empires. We should heed that warning. And that was the uh, pretty much the starting point of Osama bin Laden, was fighting with the Mujahideen against the, uh, the Soviet Union back in the 80s. So um, next we're going to move on to uh, somewhat of a controversial topic that is breaking as of the last 24 hours. So in Turkey, uh, for those who don't know, Turkey is a country that borders uh, Greece and Bulgaria. It's, um, it borders Eastern Europe, and it's essentially a gateway from the Middle East to Europe. And Turkey has sort of played an advantage, uh, they've sort of taken advantage of that. Um, and threatened Europe, where if they don't get what they want, they'll do something to Europe. Um, as of the last 24 hours, Turkey has said that it will release, or it could release, up to 1 million migrants at the border of Greece and Bulgaria. And I know a lot of people are have their you know very specific views on both sides of, we'll let them in because they have a right to enter Europe. But also at the same time, there is an argument that Turkey is not a country that can't take care of them, and this seems to be like they're dumping people that they should be taking care of onto Greece and Bulgaria um, as a threat, essentially, because, you know, at some point it does become a financial burden on these countries, and at some point it could overload the healthcare system. I think taking in migrants slowly is a good idea, but dumping a million people onto uh, two countries could be a big issue. Yeah, I think it's wrong of Turkey to be using Syrian migrants as kind of a bargaining tool uh, to try to get concessions. And, you know, I think this is also just a point, too, that shows the lack of American leadership here. I think, you know, the U.S. should be taking some migrants, too. And I think this just shows where the U.S. leadership has you know, gone down so much at this point. And I think it, it's tough, too, because Greece's economy has never recovered from, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. So having, you know, say 500,000 people come into the country, that would be a very, you know, stressful time. And they've been dealing a lot of, of with two people coming via boats into the Mediterranean and some of the Greek islands. So, you know, the country is very, you know, tough, strapped for resources at this point. And, you know, I think this is just another example, too, of Turkey kind of leaving, you know, its commitments under NATO and, you know, under Erdogan, they've gone on this really strong authoritarian, sh like, turn. I think it just shows uh, that, you know, there needs to be some more engagement in the international community to try to negotiate with Turkey, get them back uh, onto NATO, like, more of a better ally under NATO, I would say. And also just, you know, we need to find a way to address the instability in Syria to make sure that people can return if they want to return to Syria uh, to help rebuild the country uh, and make sure that, you know, everybody's protected, uh, which probably what's going to end up happening uh, is um, Assad will probably come back to power and, you know, people might be afraid if they left the country, will they be persecuted for leaving? 
I think that's going to be something they need to address. So um, for those who don't know, Assad is the uh, leader in Syria, and uh, I believe he is pretty much in power fully. I mean, ISIS has pretty much been defeated in uh, Syria, and the Russians are on the side of Assad, and the Trump administration isn't necessarily on the side of it, but they've essentially said he's there to stay. We're not going to overthrow him, which I do believe is a good thing. Because I think we should stop interfering in these countries. We should let them sort it out. We should, you know, stop trying to be this global policeman. And at the same time, um, for those who don't know, the reason why Erdogan in Turkey is doing this is it's a threat because he wants to go into Syria. He wants to do. He wants to fight Syria essentially and try and take some of their territory. And the U.S. is there, and he knows if he attacks the U.S. or any of our allies, we will attack, and we have the greatest military in the world. So it's a very large threat. You know, he doesn't want the U.S. on his doorstep. And I personally believe we should get out, and we should stop being this moderator in the Middle East. And if Erdogan wants to attack Syria, you know, he is going to have to pay the price for that um, financially the people he loses, the destruction to his country, and potentially losing the war, you know? I think he should have to deal with that, you know? Because now you have him threatening Europe with a million migrants. I think we should get out. I think it's it's a really delicate situation, too. There have been so many human rights violations uh, in Syria since the start of the Civil War that I think, you know, the U.S. just couldn't sit idly by and watch people get gassed by their own government. And I think, too, it's it's tough for Turkey, too, because their biggest concern is the Syrian Kurds have basically created their own semi-autonomous state since the country has fallen apart. Uh, it's in the northwest part of the country. They call it Rojava. And it's kind of been this self-governing uh, state while, you know, the government in Aleppo has fallen. Uh, and the U.S. was kind of supporting them in, in part because they were doing most of the heavy fighting against ISIS with the Peshmerga forces. And now that we've kind of abandoned them, we've given Erdogan the green light to start rolling in. You know, you saw this back in December. There were, you know, it was it was almost a massacre there. Yeah, so I, explain what happened in December. Yeah, so basically, from what it seems like, there was a call between uh, President Trump and President Erdogan of Turkey, uh, where Erdogan kind of wanted, you know, to know that if his troops went, you know, south into Syria, that there wouldn't be any U.S. casualties because, you know, it's a strained relationship, but the U.S. and Turkey are still allies, and he didn't want to, you know, accidentally end up, you know, killing an American service member. Uh, so the Trump administration basically withdrew most of the advisors. Basically, the only, you know, service people who were in Syria were mostly doing advising work. There wasn't a lot of, you know, on-the-ground forces. Uh, and we, you know, we withdrew some of them, and it basically just gave Syria, uh, sorry, Turkey, uh, you know, the green light to come down into uh, Syria uh, and to start, you know, attacking some of the Kurds who thought we would protect them because we were allied with them uh, because they did most of the heavy work. They've lost, I think it was 10,000 soldiers in the war against ISIS. Right, so... All of this is pretty much the reason why uh, Turkey is threatening these one million migrants. Um, so to go back to the breaking news as of the last 24 hours, um, 
what do you think should happen uh, to these migrants? Do you think they should stay in Turkey or what? Because there is also the fact that the coronavirus, you know, we don't know, you know, that's a lot of people that you would have to check and they're essentially trying to flood over the border. So should Greece and Bulgaria let them in or is it too much of a risk to the country with coronavirus? I don't think necessary coronavirus just because I don't think there have been many cases, if any, in Turkey right now. I think most of it is spread. You know, you have a really bad outbreak in South Korea, China, and Italy. Uh, but I think the big concern would just be just having a just massive increase of people coming into the country. It might be like a 5% increase in people who are going to need help. They don't have homes. They don't have jobs. They don't have health care. Uh, so, well, I do think, you know, that, you know, caring for refugees is important. I don't think it would be a great situation for any country, you know, just to have hundreds of thousands of people just come in all at once. So I think if anything, there should be, you, you know, kind of come to an agreement where, you know, maybe there's more international assistance coming to Turkey to help take care of refugees, or even, you know, maybe if Greece would be able to take, say, 50,000, Bulgaria take 50,000, and you know, some other countries, but you've also seen how this is basically, you know, interrupted the European political system. You've seen the rise of far-right politicians like Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, Brexit, what's happening in Poland, that a lot of these, you know, more like right-wing groups are coming into power in part, you know, due to some of the political instability that's happened due to a large number of refugees coming into uh, you know, the continent and, you know, I would, you know, that might do some, you know, bad things to Greece's already fragile uh, government in Athens. So um, for those who don't know, the population of Greece is 10 and a half million. So if a million people come in, that's, you're adding on 10% of the population, which is kind of ridiculous. And I also do think the coronavirus could be a concern because you don't see the symptoms of coronavirus for two weeks or longer, as far as I'm concerned. So you could have it and spread it while they have no idea that they even have it. So with a million people, I would think there's a good chance that one or two of them at the very least could have it. And people think, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Okay, but you have to quor you have to potentially quarantine all of those people. You have to test a million people you know, it kind of seems like you're going to, you know, overrun the healthcare system in uh, Greece if you have to test all these people. You know, look at what it look at what's happening in Italy. They're closing down travel. They're closing down these study abroad programs. Uh, you know, the, the infections are rising. There's food shortages. I don't think Greece wants to go through that, especially after, as what we said, um, you know, they, they have the financial crisis 10 years ago to look at, so... So um, another point that I want to make is uh, as of today, Amy Klobuchar and as of yesterday, I believe, Pete Buttigieg have dropped out of the presidential race for the, you know, the Democrat nominee. I have a very uh, strange take on this, and I haven't seen anybody else uh, have this take yet. Maybe I'm wrong, but... Um, my take is that Pete Buttigieg is a fairly moderate candidate. Amy Klobuchar is definitely a moderate candidate. She even labels herself as that. I think it's strange that the two of them dropped out after Joe Biden had such a good 
showing in South Carolina. And Bernie Sanders is sort of seen as this major threat to the Democratic establishment. I think the reason why they dropped out is to give Biden a push and to make sure that Bernie Sanders doesn't win. I think they want Joe Biden to to be the nominee. And I think Elizabeth Warren, who's a more progressive candidate, is staying in the race specifically so that Bernie doesn't get those votes. What do you what do you say to that? I think for Warren, it's not as cut and dry because you know there are a lot of polls that show you know the number two uh, for a lot of Warren supporters is Biden. But I do think, you know, I think Pete and Amy read the writing that was on the walls. They saw that, you know, they had a really poor showing on South Carolina. You know, Pete got more delegates in Iowa, strong second uh, in New Hampshire, but, you know, very distant. I think fourth place in South Carolina. So I think the two of them read the writing on the walls and saw that, you know, there was no viable path to them in the nomination. Uh, And I think, too, they... You know, it looks like they're both going to endorse Biden tonight in Texas. And I think I think that's in part, too, because, you know, they kind of have a shared vision of what they want, you know, the government to do and what, you know, their ideal candidate for president would be. So I, I think that, you know, they saw, you know, what's, you know, Super Tuesday, a third of the delegates are going to be up uh, within, you know, 24 hours from now. So I think, you know, they have this shared vision. They're passionate for what they want. I think they, you know, thought that, you know, it was time to drop out and, you know, support the candidate that they think will get that done. Right. And the point I'm making is that it's strange that they wouldn't even give Super Tuesday a chance. It's Monday. Tomorrow is Super Tuesday. Why not give it a chance? The the thing I'm saying is they want Biden to win. I think that the establishment in the Democratic Party wants Biden to win, similar to if people weren't following the 2016 election. Back then, Donald Trump, the Republican candidate, was very far in the lead, and he was sort of challenging the Republican establishment. So what the Republican establishment did is they essentially had everybody drop out until it was Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, and they made an alliance at the very end to try and beat Trump, but it was too late. And... My point is, I think that's what they're doing with Joe Biden, is everybody's dropping out who's a moderate and saying, okay, I'm endorsing Joe Biden so that when Super Tuesday comes around, it's essentially him and Bernie, because Warren's out. I mean, Warren, I, I, in my personal belief, other than Massachusetts, I don't think she's really getting any delegates. So it might, and she might not even win Massachusetts. She's probably going to be viable, but it looks like Sanders will probably have an edge over her, at least in Massachusetts. Right, so she'll get some delegates, but Bernie is going to win uh, the state. So I think... Warren is staying in because they want to take away the progressive vote, even though, as you said, uh, a lot of the Warren supporters, their second choice is Biden. A lot of them, it's Bernie, too, because she is the other progressive candidate. So I think they're keeping her in there and they're having everybody else drop out. So Biden looks like a strong candidate because for everybody who doesn't know, it looks like Bernie Sanders is in the lead if you aren't like he's he's very far in the lead if you aren't paying attention, but Joe Biden winning South Carolina essentially brought him up to tide with Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's he's right next to him. So Super Tuesday, Joe Biden could take the lead. Yeah, it's basically a two-person race at this point. I think, you know, personally, I think if there was this vast, like, DNC conspiracy, Michael Bloomberg would have dropped out a long time ago, if not by now. I think if anybody was going to pose a big threat, at least in that moderate lane, you know, with Klobuchar, 
uh, Buttigieg and Bloomberg to Biden, it would have been Bloomberg just because he has the money and resources to put investments in, you know, states that really weren't getting anybody else. You know, it, like tonight, you know, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Buttigieg are having a rally in Dallas just because you know it looks like it's going to be a very tight race in Dal- uh, in Texas between uh, Biden and Bernie, and that's a lot of delegates up for grabs. But, you know, none of them were doing events in Tennessee. You know, the only person to do an event in Massachusetts has been Bernie and Warren, you know, this year at least. But Bloomberg has put money in ads and he has multiple field offices. So he's had, you know, this just, you know, $64 billion that he's willing to spend to just open, you know, offices, hire uh, staff. And, you know, you only need 15% to be viable and get delegates. So I think that's, you know, where the biggest threat is going to be for Biden is Bloomberg. Explain the 15%. Yeah, so basically, the Democrats, you need 15%. I think it's in each congressional district to get delegates from uh, a primary. So if you're below 15% in the congressional district, you won't get delegates. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of where Bloomberg has his advantage, where he can put advertisements and staff to try to get 15% uh, in a lot of these states that, you know, People, you know, they might see one ad, but mostly rely on name recognition and what they've heard. Right, and Bloomberg has spent how much was it, four hundred million on his campaign? Which to all of us, that's a ridiculous amount. He has sixty-two billion dollars. Four hundred million is really nothing to him, you know. Uh, and another point I want to make with the Bernie Sanders, um, I actually just went to go see him in Springfield. Uh, he, he held a rally in Springfield, and I believe on Saturday uh, he was in Boston as well. Yeah, he had an and, event on the Common. Yes, and he, like, the crowd was massive. I think it reached upwards towards 10,000, which rivals uh, Donald Trump's crowds. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders seem to get very large crowds. Um, my thing with Bernie Sanders is, uh, of all of the states that have gone so far in the primaries, Bernie Sanders is leading in white votes, Latino votes, um, not black votes, but he's winning in pretty much every age group except for 65 plus. So he's winning pretty much every group that he needs to, and it just sort of seems like he is the people's candidate, you know what I mean? I think it's, it's tough to look at the first four states kind of just as a general, just because, you know, the first two, you have two caucuses which, you know, are very self-selecting. Uh, and then the other two primaries are uh, uh, New Hampshire, which is predominantly white, uh, and South Carolina that I think on the 538 podcast I was listening to this morning, I think it's the fourth highest percentage of African-American voters uh, out of any primary electorate. So I think Super Tuesday is going to be a really interesting you know, time to see, you know, kind of where the coalitions for a lot of these you know, candidates have. I think Bernie has the advantage of he ran in 2016. He has a massive email list, a massive grassroots funding network that he can tap into. You know, the meme, I'm once again asking your, for your financial support. You know, that is, you know, one of his greatest strengths as a candidate going forward in the primary. Uh, so it's definitely going to be interesting on Super Tuesday. I think it's going to be really close. And, you know, it's a two-person race at this point. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely going to be interesting heading into Milwaukee and seeing if it, you know, if anybody does have an advantage in delegates or if it's going to come down to another a second ballot at convention. 
And for those of you who don't know, uh, look up the Bernie Sanders rallies and look at the pictures of the crowds he's getting. We're talking tens of thousands, it's a sea of people. It's like he's having a concert. And then you look at somebody like Joe Biden and he can barely fill up like a gymnasium with, you know, a, a thousand people. He really struggles to get people in because I don't think he's that compelling to people. I think Bernie Sanders, the way he talks, uh, the message he has, you know, Medicare for all, free, stu um, uh, free college, wiping free your student loan debts. I think all of that speaks to people more than Biden sort of. Well, we're going to keep things the same. And I also think there's something with Joe Biden where when he talks about climate change and stuff like that, you can't really believe him because he hasn't done anything to prove that he actually wants those things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's tough for Biden that, you know, Bernie does have kind of an energetic force behind him. But I do think it's tough. You know, you haven't seen a big increase in people showing up to caucus or to go prime uh, vote in the primary so you know that's where i kind of think that you know this so-called political revolution it's going to be tough to materialize if you know you haven't seen these increases you know in you know yeah like crowd size are you know bernie's had massive crowds since even in 2016 i went to i think he had a rally at the boston convention center down in the seaport thousands of people and you know, but he ended up losing massachusetts to hillary so now, I think it's definitely going to be interesting. There are arguments, I guess, for and against, you know, both Bernie and Biden. You know, personally, I voted for Biden. Uh, but you know, I just think looking at 2018, I think, you know, Biden has a message that won the House, 40 seats in the House that, you know, hopefully can extend uh, nationwide. And I, it's definitely going to be interesting going in both to Super Tuesday and you know, going forward to see, you know, where you know, it ends up between, you know, if Bloomberg ends up saying, I I personally think Warren's going to drop out after Super Tuesday, but, you know, it probably would have been advantageous for her to drop out before Massachusetts if she's might lose, but, uh, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's definitely going to be, you know, an interesting primary like it has been so far, uh, and, you know, going, going into June. So um, we'll leave it off with one final um, sort of matchup, I guess. If come November, it's Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, and assuming the economy doesn't change too much, assuming the Dow Jones doesn't plunge uh, or skyrocket to an incredible amount, um, who do you think is going to win come November, Bernie or Trump? I think it would be close. I think, you know, it's definitely going to be... It's going to come down to the margins again, I think, you know. there. It's, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be close. I think, you know, if the economy is good, I still think Bernie could pull through. I think, you know, I personally think if Biden's a nominee, he'll, it will be a lot, you know, clearer path to victory. Uh, but I think, you know, if Bernie does energize, you know, people to turn out, and if he also does have really high support in the Latino community, you know, if he could still, you know, win, because I, I think if Bernie's the nominee, we might not win Wisconsin, but I think if he gins up support amongst Latinos, you could pick up Arizona to kind of negate, uh, you know, the value of Wisconsin. So I think if he was able to, you know, get uh, Latinos to vote, and also, you know, it's kind of always been this dream for Democrats, but even Texas, if he could gin up Latino support 
it was not as high as it was uh, for Beto, and he lost to uh, Ted Cruz by two percentage points uh, back in 2018. Uh, so who knows where Texas could be in two years. But you know, I, I think it would be close, but I think Bernie could pull through. Uh, but I think Trump's a vulnerable candidate. So explain to people why Texas is becoming sort of a swing state. Because Texas, to a lot of people, they think guns, conservatism, you know, you know, the Wild West, yeah. you know. Uh, why is Texas becoming sort of a swing state? Yeah, I think, you know, some parts of Texas are definitely still guns, Ronald Reagan, cowboys, kind of that whole aesthetic. But you've seen Texas kind of, its urban centers have grown. Uh, and it's also been a very diverse state uh and just you know there are the percentage of non-white people in texas has been growing a lot for the past couple decades uh and you know as those demographic groups have shifted more uh towards democrats and you know as more uh, sorry as more uh, college-educated white voters and suburban vo- voters have shifted towards Democrats, too, you know, you've kind of seen this reckoning happen where, you know, you've seen some of the Houston suburbs have flipped blue, and it's kind of always been this dream for Democrats that you could pick up Texas, and, you know, as, you know, it seems that Democrats are starting to lose uh, pretty routinely Ohio, you know, some of these Rust Belt areas that, you know, the Sun Belt, as it's called, might finally start shifting for Democrats as, you know, Arizona and Texas. Uh, so it's just a mix of demographics and people moving to Texas. So so if Texas were to go to the Democrats, if Texas were to, I guess, if the Latino population were to rise to an amount where Republicans um, might not be able to rival it, um, doesn't that kind of spell the death nail for a Republican Party, at least as it is right now? Because uh, Texas is a very large percentage of the votes, and it's pretty much what keeps them in the election. You know, for those who don't know, California uh, has a very large number of electoral votes, and Democrats get it every election. It's not even rivaled by Republicans. That was what it used to be for Texas. So Democrats used to not be able to rival Texas, but now they can. If they win Texas... Doesn't that kind of mean the Republicans can't really even win an election anymore? Yeah, it would definitely kind of, you know, it would be definitely an electoral headache for Republicans. I think personally, Texas, I don't think it's there yet. I think it's still shifting there. I think it's going to be closer than it was in 2016, and you'll probably see that in 2024. Uh, But I think it would definitely, uh, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of states that are kind of shifting it might just be, you know, Trump's certain brand of, you know, his brand of politics has started to get these states to shift. Uh, but you saw, you know, Sherrod Brown won in Ohio. Uh, but, you know, Rich Cordray, who was running for governor in Ohio, still lost. So, you know, you've seen Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin kind of shift away from Democrats and even Minnesota to a certain degree that Amy Klobuchar would always point out at the debates. But, uh, you've kind of seen some of these more post-industrial states shift away from Democrats. So you know, Explain uh, post-industrial. Yeah, so kind of, you know, the old manufacturing states like Michigan was, you know, auto manufacturing, a lot of, you know, iron work, steel work uh, in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And a lot of these plants closed mostly in part to, you know, automation and advances in technology, but some of it was due 
uh, you know, to global globalization uh, and, you know, new competition from uh, countries all over the globe. Uh, and, you know, a lot of voters in those areas kind of shifted to, you know, this more populist message that, you know, both Sanders won Michigan in the primary by 20 points and then Trump ended up squeaking out a victory uh, in 2016. So, you know, as those states, you know, if they continue to shift away from Democrats, they're they're going to have to find some more states to vote for them. Uh, so that might be North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, or Arizona. I think that's where, you know, Democrats are going to start looking at, uh, you know, the Rust Belt, as they like to call it, start shifting away. So I think that's a good place to end the podcast at. And uh, I'd just like to say to uh, everybody who's listening that uh, you might not agree with the conservative viewpoint and you might not agree with the liberal viewpoint, but what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to uh, sort of bring everybody together and know that there is a conversation that's going on that, you know, even if I don't agree with the viewpoint, I can make the argument for that viewpoint. So that's really the point I'm trying to make with this podcast. Um, just remember that you can follow me on Twitter at Jake Trotsky, and where can they find the UMass Dems? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at UMass Dems, and we're also on Facebook, UMass Democrats.